when my book came out, Charlie Munger invited me to Omaha, and I went out to see the annual meeting, and it was incredible. There was just so many people, in the, about 30,000 people in the Omaha, you know, in Omaha, Nebraska, in the stadium, and um, and then he invited me up to a, like a, on Sunday. We went into the Marriott Hotel, and there was one room that was Buffett with the pension funds, and another room that was Bill Gates, and and uh, I'll never forget. I'm in the room waiting for Charlie Munger. And in he came, and uh, my, my, my wife uh, introduced, I introduced my wife, and, and he said, one thing he said to me that I'll never forget, he said, Larry, the toughest thing in the world to do is stare at a screen all day and do nothing. And he, he was talking about, you know, this is a couple of years, this is several years ago. He was just talking about how, you know, Berkshire will sit there and wait. And then I look at the last two years, and this is, I've just been incredible. I mean, they have 136 billion in cash, and they didn't buy any stocks in the drawdown in 2018. That was a 20% drawdown. And then in 2020, we had a 36% drawdown and they didn't put any money to work. So it tells you they're, they're sitting in the boat and they're waiting for uh, you know better values. Our guest today is someone who looks for the unexpected instead of focusing on the obvious as he analyzes the intersection between politics and markets, which is a relationship that is perhaps more important than ever before in our lifetime, and where politics could well be the key driver of markets. And on top of this, he is a New York Times best-selling author with his book, A Colossal Failure of Common Sense, which is about the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So I'm absolutely convinced that you will have your eyes opened from our conversation with Larry McDonald of the Bear Traps Report. Larry, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our series into the world of global macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in a global and historical framework and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even years, and ultimately how this will impact all of us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolios. We very much look forward to diving into a few different topics in the next hour or so, not least because in your work, you look at the unexpected instead of focusing on the obvious as you analyze the intersection between politics and markets, which is a relationship that is perhaps more important than ever before in our lifetimes and where politics could well be the key driver of markets. Larry, you also wrote a very important and popular book titled A Colossal Failure of Common Sense, which is about the collapse of Lehman Brothers. But to me, this title could well be used about what's going on in the world economy and in many of the markets today. So tell me <laughs> how you see tell me how you see the world when you look at it right now. Well, there's some incredible opportunities because of the politics, and there's also some just really blood-curdling risks that are just uh, on the... I think we're very close to, to a big move down in, say, the tech sector. But there's just so many opportunities and there's so much divergence between asset classes. And because of the 15 trillion of fiscal and monetary juice that's rolling around the planet, there's just so many asset classes that are mispriced and prices are going to change a lot in the next six to nine months. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And just sort of our curiosity, when when you look at the world, and, and I'm sure we'll dive into many of these asset classes as we go through our conversation today, but 
many of the commentators and actually some of our guests uh, in this series have drawn parallels to, say, 1929 or the Japanese bubble in the late 80s, even the tech bubble and the great financial crisis. But of course, on top of all of this, we have this pandemic floating around the world. Do you look at any of these past periods as playing out again right now? Or is this really different this time? Well, it's, you know, every every crisis, over, at least in my opinion, every crisis over the last you know, 100 years, there's a metamorphosis. There's a kind of a serpent that turns into another beast. So, and I think this one will be very much like that. I mean, the, think about 12 years ago, today, the Lehman crisis, there was a giant hole in the banking system that the central bankers had to fill. And they filled that on the back of, of, of really taxpayers, voters in, in, the, in Europe and in the United States. And that brought on a lot of this populist rebellion that's kind of now with us. But, but today, with the COVID crisis, instead of having one big hole that the central banks are trying to fill, there's thousands and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of holes that the only way to address that is with a shotgun approach versus 10 years ago, it was much more of a surgical strike. And when you get into a shotgun approach in terms of fiscal and monetary, where they're trying to identify the holes, the problem with that is it's going to have a big impact on prices. And I think the complacency around inflation and the certainty of, of deflation in so many people's minds and the fact that inflation is not being taken very seriously is very, is not is really discounting a major this whole shotgun approach to what central banks and governments are doing. So I think that's the biggest difference between now and 2008. Right. What's on your mind today, Rob? Hardly know where to start. Uh, so, <laughs> so much we could talk about. Let's rewind slightly and think about the beginning of this crisis and kind of compare it to the, the, the beginning of the previous crisis. And I think it's probably more interesting to talk about the previous crisis because obviously you were right at the centre of it, you know. So we were all working in the markets at the time, but I guess the three of us were a bit more on the periphery, whereas you really were in, in, in the bear pit. One thing I found interesting about that crisis at the time was in terms of the, the things that, that I was looking at on a day-to-day -day basis, in terms of worrying about the, the risk and stress in the markets, most of the indicators that, that we were looking at by the time we got to kind of early 2009 were things that in 18 months ago, almost no one was looking at. So I'm talking about things like, like the LIBOR, LIBOR OAS spread, yeah. CDS prices, which only CDS traders had cared about. And all of a sudden, everyone was like, well, these are a key measure of you know, potential defaults, both in the corporate and the sovereign world. What are the indicators that sort of updated to today? What, what are the things that, that could have perhaps given us an early signal in, in maybe January or even late last year? And what are the things that we should be looking at now as, as an indication of the fact that, you know, something, something big in terms of a market move is, is, is going to be coming our way? Well, we have what's really helpful is we have a Bloomberg chat with 500 institutional investors that's live. And out of the 500, there's probably 50 or 60 contributors that help us analyze the cross-asset indicators that develop. And we do it live. And uh, what we were seeing last February versus what we're seeing, say, the last 10 days, there's a lot of similarities. In February, it was so clear. Um, and we did make some high conviction calls. But, you know, when you're going through, when you're on the battlefield in the heat of the moment, sometimes it's tough to identify exactly what's happening. But it was clear to us in February, you know, you just had 
a real flattening of the curve, a big bid to euro dollars, and just just tracking. And for, you know, for people at home now, all a euro dollar bet is the amount of capital. If you can measure the amount of capital that's being bet on rate cuts from central banks, so those two things were very powerful. So we look at the five thirties curve or the twos tens. So those are those are treasury bonds of the United States. And all that means is the curve is flattening. So people are buying that long-term bond. So the yields are coming down and they're buying the long-term bond because they think something really bad is about to happen. At the same time, we had copper collapsing, oil collapsing. We had the two-month VIX future versus the eight-month. That curve was also in a big flattening dynamic. So that means all that means for people at home watching us right now, that just means big hedge funds around the world were paying up for that two-month VIX future protections like insurance on the market. And so we had a number of these indicators. Then on the consumer side, airlines, anything consumer-centric, a consumer REITs in certain big cities, all these things were really underperforming. Um, and so that was the first batch of indicators. And the second was just, you could see the very clearly from, from Asia to Europe, the cases in, e, in each metric, COVID rates, as back then people were looking at them, we, were, we started to look at them around January 15th or so, and we were sharing the data in the Bloomberg chat. So what we focus on today at the Bear Trap Support is the same indicators, a lot of them are acting up now, but a lot of them are different. And, and I think that speaks to this new inflation dynamic that's starting to come at us. But I think first of all, Curves flattening uh, over the last 10 days. We saw a lot of money moving into euro dollar bets. So once again, people are betting on negative rates. You know, I think overall, just to put call ratio in, 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 the, in the NASDAQ, extremely high sell signals there. The amount of stocks that are above the 200-day in terms of the percentage, and in case of the cloud stocks, for example, close to 40% uh, above the 200-day moving average. So the index of those stocks is trading 400, close to 40% above the 200-day. So there's a lot of sell signals today. What's not what's not acting the same is copper and a lot of the commodities. There's a much bigger support system behind the commodity regime today than there was in February. And that tells you that uh, investors around the world are, are worried about price action looking forward. Interesting. All right, so over to you. Hey, great to have you on, Larry. Thank you. Thank you, Mort. It's just I just want to come back to uh, what you just said about the shotgun, and I can actually envision a bazooka because you know the the amount of money that has been deployed has been thus far so much more than what was done during the GFC, right? And in so much a shorter period of time. Yes. So I guess you know what's become evident is that the V-shaped recovery is in the markets, but it may not be in the economy. And I just want to speak to you a bit about the inflation deflationary camps, because people that we speak to, it tends to be that, you know, they're either on the one side or they're on the other. Yes. And I have the feeling that a majority of the people, they are on the inflationary side, but maybe more longer term or medium to longer term. And I guess what we're seeing is the asset price inflation that people talk about, but we're not yet seeing the Main Street price inflation. And some people forecast that, you know, because the economy is actually suffering still, there may be a deflationary period ahead, right? With more unemployment, the demographic effects and all of that type of stuff. So over what period of time do you see those things playing out? Well, first, I think a couple of things have been going on. Number one, the deflation camp like 30 days ago, 40, maybe actually more like 60 days ago, was much more uh, universal. So expectations for deflation were, were very high conviction across almost every asset class. 
now you're you're right. You, you're, st- you're starting to see people really hanging on to that deflationary problem on the consumer side. Absolutely, you know you have in the United States you still have 20 million people unemployed. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a tragedy. It's a big number. And now you have the $600 a week. And that's why this next bill coming out, we had a call this morning with institutional clients with our team in Washington. And most of those questions, important questions were focused on that. You know, what, what are the Republicans going to do about $600 a week? Because if you don't extend that, that's a major hit to uh, the stimulus. They're rolling off end of July, yes. right? Sorry to interrupt. Yes, exactly. No, please do. Please do. Yeah, so the 600 a week, if you do the math, that's like people are taking home close to 50000 a year for staying at home. That's why that question of yours was so, was so perfect for this conversation, because if you think about it, the reason why we're starting to see some inflation is because in some cases, consumers have had a pay raise. Now, granted, the savings rate has exploded, mm-hmm. but there's, there's yeah. a lot of money flowing around that would, it's, it's like a fiscal cliff is coming at us again. All the fiscal cliff means is when you have a big pile of stimulus that's going to come away in a short period of time, that's what's called a fiscal cliff, a fiscal cliff and that would cause some type of short-term deflation. But um, the, the dislocations globally on the commodity side in terms of the ability to produce commodities because of COVID has been shocking, like just in terms of the rig count in, in Texas in terms of shale. Or if you look at right. the, amount of co- the amount of copper mines in the world that have been taken offline. So there's so many moving parts that, and there's so much coming at us in terms of changes, like with, with legislation, that... That's why there's a lot of like, okay, you're absolutely right. Most people are like, the the the, the inflation cr- camp is definitely pegging. Every one of them is pegging it on like 12 to 18 months from now. Whereas the def- deflation camp is pretty high conviction that we're going to have a problem near term. But I would say, if you look at five-year, five-year forwards, right? So that's one way to measure expectations. Yeah. Those have been creeping up. If you just look at the amount of capital that's moved into commodities. So I, I think... Here's a main main point, and this is so important. So when you don't allow the business cycle, and this this is going to get right to your question, when you don't allow the business cycle to function over longer and longer and longer periods of time, what happens is more and more wealth is created, asset prices go up. So if you think about in the United States, the amount of money that are in bonds, stocks, and just you know what the wealthy people own, that money in, in tech stocks and bonds and both both corporate. So there's right now ten trillion in the U.S. corporates. And there's another 15 trillion in, in treasuries. And then if you take the money, amount of money in FANG stocks and tech and municipal bonds, so you're talking about $40 trillion just in those four groups. 40 Massive. Trillion. Massive. And guess what? And that five years ago, three years, two years ago, that number was 30 trillion. So think about those people that, that have that wealth. Even though there's no inflation right now, if you're one of those people with a billion bucks that's sitting in, in, in cash or whatever, you're going to take 5% of that and put it into commodities right now because there's just so much money, that, there's so much more money that is in deflation bets. At the end of the day, paper assets that are stocks and bonds and these types of things are really deflationary bets, especially tech stocks. And they perform really well in deflationary environments and they don't, they don't, don't perform very well in an inflationary environment. So if you're long these things, some of that money is starting to move into commodities, even though there's no sign of real inflation. Yeah, or long-dated bonds. I mean, that's the perfect deflationary bet, right? I mean, the longer duration, then the more you benefit from any deflation. What I found, you know, just the idea, the thought of it was, and and I read this, I forgot who it was, but it was like, um, 
if inflation shows up, maybe when, not if, inflation shows up, right? Yeah. Let's say it's 4 or 5% per year, something like that. So it's not 18, it's 4 or 5, right? Maybe let it rip for five, six years, right? Because if you compound it, it's going to be 25, 30%, right, over that period of time. And, you know, that does away with all the debt that's out there. And so, you know, maybe for once, the central bank is not going to be, okay, we are running at or close to 2%, depending on the central bank, whatever the targets are, right? Here in, here in Europe, they say it's about 2%. I never know why that is, but they came up with that magic number of 2%. Yes. <laughs> maybe they'll just let it go for 4 or 5, right? And, and uh, so all of us suffer a little, unless you have your money in commodities and gold and, you know, things like that, that are positive, responsive to, uh, positively responsive to inflation. But... That's going to be an interesting period ahead. Yeah, well, there's no question. The consensus on the street now, and all of our clients are institutional clients, hedge funds, everybody's convinced they're going to let it run hot. And the mistake in 2008 was, in 2008 to 2012, they really didn't let it run hot enough. And 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 they cut it off too quick, you know, with the taper. And so the Larry Summers camp has been doing a dance in America, you know, this hmm. secular stagnation camp. That's And they've been really like, they've been very celebratory in terms of they've been right. That camp has been right. And um, so now there's just a vested interest in the academic and uh, financial community in America to let it run hot. But the one thing about that is when your balance sheet is, um, think about this, when your balance sheet's seven trillion now, the Fed balance sheet will probably be 10 trillion a year from now. And then on the course for maybe two, three years, we're basically, if, if, if things don't dramatically change, we're looking at 15 to 20 trillion of uh, just Fed balance sheet within two, three years. And then the problem is, I want you to think about this. In the old days, you know, when, when, I, when I was growing up or when I, I lived, I lived through the Volcker era. I remember seeing days where, where yields went up 2% a day on treasuries almost. Wow. So if you have that type of move today, the losses at the central bank in terms of their mark to market on their portfolio it's going to be so large that they're going to have a, a, a real problem at some point. And that's why I think you're seeing a, another reason why you're seeing a move into hard assets. And, and, and sorry to interrupt, oh, guys, sure. but I think that is, that, is, that is a perfect question. But you're right. I mean, the Fed or any central bank, they hold those bonds that they've purchased as, as an asset on their balance sheet, right? So that, that asset will yes. be massively impaired. So exactly. in order to avoid bankruptcy, because, you know, there's two sides of the equation here, what are they going to do? It's either going to be a jubilee, I'm not sure if that's working, or it needs to be transferred into some sort of a zero coupon perpetual type of thing, uh, where we just say, you know, it's going to be on our balance sheet, but, you know, it just sits there. We're not going to be paying it back anyway. So we will be paying it back, but at an infinite point in time in the future. Yeah, that's the argument I've heard, is that that's one way out of it, is you turn it into a... Uh a zero coupon perpetual, <laughs> and, uh, and but and in order to get there, uh, you definitely, the argument is that hard assets, like a year ago, even four months ago, you know, commodities were in this bear market because nobody wanted to be long um, hard assets or commodities. But now if they, if they go down that road and the amount of printing, just now, look at, look at the United States, they haven't even collected, ta- I mean, it's July 15th, they haven't collected a penny this year. I'm, I'm paying my taxes uh, tomorrow, for the first time, I'm paying last year's taxes. So they, they have been, right now, the, the, everybody in America is talking about the general account. So the, the Treasury general account is is uh, upwards of a trillion dollars now. Because what's happened is the Treasury's printed money uh, through selling bonds. And they've paid out some, but the commitments in terms of 
the amount of commitments that they have to pay, they still they still have about 200 billion that they have to parcel out, and then they need approval from Congress to deploy the rest of the money. So Treasury's been selling lots of bonds, even though they haven't collected any tax revenue. And so that's pure MMT. I mean, it's pure. And that's why I think the play for the next 18 months is really starting to take some capital and position it toward commodities, because it's not just gold or silver. I'm talking about commodities across the board. I mean, there's so much to unpack. Having started my own career in the mid-80s trading Danish government bonds and seeing the Berlin Wall break down and see what that does to rates, I can certainly attest that you can lose a hell of a lot of money when yields go up. And the frightening thing is that most fixed income managers today or traders today, they've never been in an experienced an environment where rates go up, likewise with the investors. So it really is, uh, when it does start to happen, uh, it's going to be uncharted territory for, for many people. And I think also that a lot of people uh, are not aware of, I think, how quickly inflation can show up. I've been quoting a few times on the podcast, uh, you know, the difference between the 1% inflation in 1915 and the 21% inflation in 1917. Same happened in 1945 to 1947. And from 72 to 74, massive increase in inflation when it does happen. So I don't know if it's going to stay on the same point. But I mean, you do a lot of great work with um, Real Vision where Raul has been very vocal about his three-phase view on the current environment, the unraveling hope and insolvency, I think he calls it, where I think we're about to enter, in, in his mind, sort of the insolvency phase. And I wanted to ask you whether, besides having dated the same girl as Raul, <laughs> you also share the same view, or maybe I should say taste, when it comes to which phase of the economy we're in and, and the markets. Because again... He's in the deflationary or kind of negative yield camp on that, but there may be other things where you actually see things uh, more similarly. Yeah, we, we, you know, what I love about what's happening in America and around the world is that, you know, we were all at banks and hedge funds three or four or five years ago. Now we're working with people like yourselves around the world. It's a lot more fun, and I really enjoy it. But, but I'm very grateful to Rao and, and the Real Vision platform. So yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I've been trying to like work my you know, arms around you know, like the differences between where Rao is. And there really are two camps. There's the immediate deflation camp that the problem with that argument, right? You think about the dollar. There's three legs to the dollar stool. There's the United States and a second wave there in terms of second wave, how, how, how dangerous it is, how bad it is relative to the rest of the world. And then there's the political uncertainty and there's a deficit spending and this really left-wing shift in the United States toward more fiscal. So that's going on. So that's dollar negative, right? Because it's just investors the last four or five years. The, the problem with the dollar uh, bull crowd is they're coming out of Brexit, uh, trade war, and um, a COVID, the first round of COVID. All those things were incredibly supportive of the dollar and really forced global investors into the United States, hiding out in U.S. assets, hiding out in U.S. stocks, hiding out in U.S. bonds. And during that period, you really didn't have as, that much political uncertainty. Now you have an, uh, an election where you're really going to go potentially to a, a very, if, it, if it's a blue wave, it's going to be a very, very Congress that is going to go left wing. And you're talking about yeah. uh, that brings a lot of uncertainty. You can say whatever you want about Trump. But at the end of the day, uh, the Republicans have controlled the Senate. 
and the White House and the Democrats have the House for the last two years, that balance, no matter what people say about Trump, that balance gives investors globally, globally a lot more certainty. So the, the, the three legs of the dollar stool, that, that part of it's shaky. Now, the other part is, let's go to Europe. So fragmentation in Europe, this whole thing with the, the, this recovery fund and the fact that we're in like a kumbaya moment where the Europeans, even the most fiscally conservative, there is a period where, okay, for at least one year, people are going to try to work together, right? So that's supporting the euro. Uh, whereas, like we saw in 2008, it's the same thing I talked about in my book, A Colossal Fair of Common Sense, when I talked about Europe, okay, you had a period there where after Lehman, Europeans stuck together for about a year, year and a half, two years until finally the financial stresses in, in Greece started to rear their ugly head. So in Europe, you probably do have another six months before the Italian start, Mr. Salvini and them, you know, starts making some real noise or the, or the Dutch, or, you know, really start to potentially, the countries in the north really start to potentially pull away. So that's supportive of the euro, at least for six months. You know, not, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that uh, this is not a, a firm part of the stool. This could easily start to, to break down and like toward the end of the year. But that's dollar, that's very dollar negative. And then China. The one thing about when, when I spend a lot of time on the Hill, we take clients around the Hill, uh, meet with people from Treasury. We've just spent a lot of time, not so much uh, going down there this year because of COVID, but a lot of calls. And I can tell you right now, the people in the White House, as much noise as Trump makes, it's just noise. And I think behind the scenes, there's a lot of backdoor agreements that just say, just similar to what Mr. Mr. Obama and Mr. Medvedev, you know, when they said, you know, that moment when he said, you know, let's talk after the election. Uh, I just don't think that the White House really wants to have a problem with China in the last two months, you know, three months before the election. So once again, that's very supportive of the yuan. That's negative for the dollar. And so, so if, if the U.S. went into this COVID situation last, which it did, and it's going to come out last, and those other two legs of the dollar stool are firm, right? For the first time in five years, those two legs are firm, right? For the first time, the European leg and the China leg are firm for six months, for the first time in five years. No Brexit, no trade war, no, you know, no, no Mr. Salvini running around making threats. So that tells me that the dollar could really have a hardcore down move here. I think Rao's going to be right, but I think that that crowd is kind of underestimated the near-term kind of the short-term uh, impact of, of the election and the political implications. And then Rao's theory will probably play out next year. Yeah, no, interesting. I mean, actually, you're speaking about, I mean, it's interesting to hear your view about what you hear from from the White House, because I did notice, and I think actually it was Grant Williams who wrote about this and mentioned it on, on another podcast I was listening to. And I did read the first part of this memo that came out from the White House in, I think, 20th of May of this year. When you read it, it really sounds like a declaration of war de facto against the Chinese. I don't know if you read it, but it's it's worth a, it's worth a read. But maybe it's, as you say, it's just um, postulating and not really wanting to do anything more than that. Yeah, he wants to... The, both, And here's the scary thing for next year. Both, you know, in the election, both Biden and Trump are going to position themselves as as anti-China in terms of trade, in terms of bringing jobs home. I mean, if you take a ride upstate New York, upstate Pennsylvania, upstate Ohio, I mean, the decimation in America, I've taken long rides. Mm. And uh, my next book is, is more about this populist rebellion in the United States. 
And it's just incredible. The opioid deaths, you're talking about life expectancy in mm. some of these states gone from like 82, 83 years to, you know, to 61, 62. You're talking about 15, 20 a year drop in life expectancy in some communities, all because of opioid addictions. And, and this is all related to the, the lack of hope. It, it, the financial crisis was the hit. And then the drain of jobs out of the middle of America and, and it's, it's a real serious problem. And, and that's why you, you do hear a lot of this noise. But I, I just don't think the White House will act on it uh, until after the election. And, and because if then, because at the end of the day, people forget. And I, and I wrote about this in our website and client letters. I'm convinced that Janet Yellen, with that promising the world in 2014, 15, ahead of the, you know, 18 months ahead of the election, they were promising the world pounding the table, they were going to hike rates 12 to 16 times. And every bank bought into it. Every bank thought there were going to be 12 to 15 rate hikes in the two years before the election. At the end of the day, so the dollar ripped, right? 82 to 104. And that move crushed American, middle American jobs. It really, I think it partially cost Hillary Clinton the election because Trump won Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania by a 190,000 votes, right? So that dollar move was so vicious. And um, and I think tr the Trump camp has learned that you really can't have a runaway dollar heading toward an election. You really want that dollar down and, and that'll that'll help whatever's left of, of, of middle America. But that just, just staying on that topic, you mentioned you've taken these rights and you see how the U.S. is, is, is challenged in many of these states. Um, I believe from your work, you you believe in cycles and and you know of 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 different sorts and and of course we certainly the three of us have discussed on the podcast uh, you know Neil Howe's work and the fourth turning and and it kind of all fits into us going into a really really difficult decade as kind of the last stint because everybody may believe that the big crisis was the the GFC but actually when you read the book and 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 the work they've done actually the real big crisis is at the end of the fourth turning, which is really what they predicted to be, you know, the next 10 years from from now. And and frankly, this is something I think going back to the inflation uh, discussion, inflation expectations often really take hold when there's a big geopolitical shock, typically a war. <laughs> and actually, fourth turnings tend to end in a wall. So there are a lot of things that points in the same direction, frankly. Yes. And um, I did a sit down with Neil Ferguson and Neil Ferguson's made that point. You know, in the 60s, you didn't really have the inflation until the Vietnam War. And 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 so Neil Howe's work, I think, is is incredibly, the foreshadowing is just, you know, very, very disturbing because it, it is all lining up that way. And you know, populism, there's a left-wing part of the populism and a, and a right-wing part of populism globally. And we've seen both in Greece, uh, you saw the left-wing and the right-wing. Now in the United States, you know, we went right with Trump. Uh, it's just a matter of time before we go left. And when we go left, you're, you're talking about people that have no respect for, um, really for, for austerity. And you're talking about real spending and you know, whether that leads to war or not, I mean, maybe the fact that, you know, both the Biden camp and the Trump camp are going to continue to, to really pound home on China after at least you know, more so after the election uh, to try to bring some jobs back to the U.S. 
So yeah, it's all lining up for a very, very big move in asset prices over the next three years. And it, it is the fourth turning. I, I am a buyer of that kind of cycle. What's the um, the cross-country picture like then? So we talked about currencies, obviously. But if I look at valuations in, in sort of fixed income and equities across the Atlantic, I mean, there's some huge differences, right? So the US market, particularly the tech sector, looks ridiculously overvalued compared to Europe and compared to the UK. I mean, the UK is just super, super cheap. And we've had this Brexit discount for a long time now. And I guess that's not going away anytime soon. That's not going that well, to be honest. And then, uh, and, you know, in the fixed income markets, which obviously is, is you know, your background and, and, and my background and, and Niels's background as well. We, you, you think that um, US 10 years are, are like at 63 basis points or whatever they are today. You think that that's low, and then you you look at you know look at bonds, which are you know minus eighty five basis points or something ridiculous. So how do you see those valuations playing out? Are they are those differences here to stay, or could they even get worse, or are they going to narrow? I mean, what, what, how do you see those flows? Well, this gets back to the Neil Howe fourth turning in in our last discussion in terms of tech. So the the largest hundred companies in America, the largest hundred companies in, say, 1960s and 1970s, were anywhere between 55 and 65% of the profits were in the largest 100 companies. And then the 80s and 90s, that number went up to like 75 to 80, maybe 79. So in terms of the largest 100 companies, what percentage of the profits? And now we're up to 90, 80, 89 to 91% of the profits are inside the largest 100 companies. So this is a massive, you've gone from the gone from the 65%, 62% up to 90%. The largest hundred companies just have so much of the profits. I'm talking real profits. And so it just sets up with uh, if you get a blue wave, or even if Trump's reelected, the probability of a destructive anti antitrust phase in America is so high. And the probability of like real not laws, but just like restrictions on tax. On, uh, on stock buybacks. I mean, we've done, since Lehman, we've done $6 trillion of buybacks, $6 trillion. And uh, everybody knows this, and it's funded by debt. And so the companies are issuing the bonds, and the central banks are buying the bonds, and then they're buying the stock, stocks. And the whole thing is just so setting up for such incredible inequality. And it's really central planning gone mad and gone bad. And it's setting up for real populist rebellion, which means that a lot of money, I think, once there's a response to this, which should come in the next six months and nine months, the money's going to really flow out of the U.S. and into some of the other parts of the world. Like you said, European equities, U.K. equities are trading at you know, 12 times earnings and U.S. equities are trading at 20 times earnings. Makes no yeah. sense, but it's because of the buybacks. And it's because of the concentration of profits. The other thing, I guess, it's not just about concentration, but I think if you look at US corporate profits divided by GDP, I think that number certainly, you know, before the crisis was was at a record level. It had gone over, what, you know, past what it had been in uh, in 2007 and, and before that in, in 1999. So, so yeah, there's clearly a concentration of wealth. You can really see that in that figure as well. Yeah, when, when the more time I spend on the Hill, uh, we, we meet with, you know, we take, we'll take the clients around the Hill, we'll do calls, meet with senators, meet with uh, members of the House Financial Services Committee. When you go down there every year for, for almost 10 years now, you definitely see a tone change. 
And the tone change I've seen in the last year, year and a half, in these trips, these calls, is just much more, even from Republicans, much more populism, much more antitrust incentivized. And you're going to see a big reaction from Senate leadership, House leadership next year, the year after. And another big trend, too, is is income. So you want to look for sectors in America, new sources of revenue. One uh, sector that, that we're, we're spending a lot of time in is the cannabis space. So you get a blue wave, uh, more left-leaning uh, House, Senate, White House in the United States. And even with the Trump win, these states are bankrupt. You're talking about a default potentially in New York City. You're talking about New York State and Illinois. Illinois, did, I think, 100% probability default within the next two, three years. So you're going to have a massive shortfall of cash at the state level. You need another trillion dollars for the state. You need another trillion dollars for the infrastructure to replace all these service jobs that have been wiped out. And so it just sets up for a dynamic where new sources of revenue, like the cannabis space, you want to look for green technology, like the next infrastructure bills. Like right now, there's a trillion, a $3 trillion plan in the House, which won't get passed. But the, the House and Senate will probably meet in the middle for, for say, a trillion. And uh, Democrats' plan is much more green. You know, there's uh, there's much more of a green uh, infrastructure, whereas Republicans more traditional infrastructure. So these are the these these things are going to have a massive impact on asset prices, and especially for European investors, you get you really have to have your uh, you know ear to the ground in terms of what's coming out of Washington. I think that's what we heard from the Biden camp uh, probably today or maybe yesterday that they're going for that green deal. Uh, which is something that we didn't really hear that much about in the United States in, in years prior. But what I really want to say is, I mean, you could say that at any point in time, there's always stuff going on in the financial markets and in the world. There's always risk. And that's certainly true, right? But absolutely, yeah. when I look at today, it's just, I mean, the the things that are happening all at the same time, it may be the most decisive economic point in time in our careers. Because, you know, be that the South China Sea, which we heard about this morning, tariffs. I mean, nobody talks about the tariffs anymore. You know, it's been yesterday's tweeting news, but it's still happening, right? Yes. You have the COVID crisis, you have Iran, you have failing pension systems, you have states at the risk of bankruptcy, probably California and Connecticut, right? You have the Brexit, you have a failing euro, potentially. I mean, North Korea, this, that, and the other thing, it, it's countless, all the amount of debt, right? And I just, you know, when I step back from that picture and you put that all on the canvas, I think, well, let those equity prices go as high as they may. We've seen that picture before. Yes, there absolutely, there's a massive stimulus going on, right? But maybe, probably, they will crash. And I'd rather be exposed to things such as gold or, you know, assets that give me an exposure to positive convexity or positive skew, trend-following strategies, whatever the case may be, right? Pick your pick your poison in, in, in a sense. But particularly, I'd be interested in the outlook for gold because that comes up all the time. So we have to ask you the same question. You know, you spoke about the commodities, but gold being the primary monetary commodity, where do you think that thing's going? Well, a lot higher for gold, for sure. I, I just think what happens with gold is... Um, you know, it's like a stadium. It's so thick picture in your mind, like a, a stadium with, say, 50,000, 60,000 people. And the amount of people that care about metals in the world relative to tech stocks, relative to corporate bonds, relative to government bonds, it's a very, very small pond. And that's what makes it so, the convexity so sexy and exciting because, because the, there's 
but the, the first, what happens is, as people come into the stadium, and this happened in the 70s, it's happened, I mean, it happens throughout all the cycles. As people come into the stadium, the first thing they buy is gold. You know, that's the first, and that, that, gets, and that gets, to, gets to be a crowded asset class. And as that's why if you look, we, look, we monitor the gold-silver ratio, copper-gold. These ratios were really skewed two months ago toward gold because, once again, the first 40,000 people in the stadium that are interested in this space are going to buy, you know, the granddaddy, the gold. But but right, right now at this part in the cycle with the amount of printing on out of the central banks, I'd much rather be long silver, to some extent even copper, but definitely silver because – uh, as we've seen throughout past cycles, as more people come into the stadium, gold is higher and higher. 1800 1900 becomes very expensive. And it gets silver down there at $18. It, it becomes, there's the, the silver pond is so small. And so your your risk reward with silver here is like, you're talking like three, 400% up and, you know, 30, 30 I guess, 20, you know, depending on where you stop yourself out, 20 to 30% down. Whereas gold has had so much of the love the last you know, year with people coming into the stadium that it, it does look a little bit crowded. But I think I guess I would be rolling if, if I'm looking at gold and silver, I'd be long two thirds uh, your silver ratio and one third gold. Interesting. I didn't know that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great analogy with that stadium. I, I thought there's more people in the world actually looking at the gold markets and, you know, actively investing in them. You know, we've heard a couple of news uh, probably around the, the turn of the year that, you know the physical gold stores, for instance, in Germany, they ran out of metal. They and this was this was pre the COVID mint crisis where the refineries couldn't produce enough gold, right? It had to do with kind of like the year and change and stuff like that. But apparently, a lot of retail people had run into physical gold stores and they bought everything they could. Um, so there's at least here in Germany, there's a little bit of hoarding going on. We're very very afraid of inflation. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just talking about the uh, and yeah, Germany after what Germany went through. In the you know, 30s and 40s, I guess it'd be the 20s. Was it 20? The Weimar? What year was that? Yeah, the, the in the 30s, 30s. mainly in the 30s. So, yeah. But the, I'm just talking about like these Fang stocks. You know, you're talking about this three, two stocks now are worth three trillion. So in other words, the amount of money that's in the bonds, the Fang, is just is so big relative to the to the amount yeah. of money in metals. So that just if just like five percent of this capital that's in really paper assets moves over. You're just going to have a much bigger move in silver because silver is so small relative to gold. Smaller, yeah. yeah, and such more volatile. Yeah, I thought they were all moving into Tesla. That seems to be uh... <laughs> well. So, fun thing about Tesla. I'm not sure if it's I, I didn't verify it, but you know, we've all heard the news about you know Tesla trading north of fifteen hundred, right? And Tesla being worth more than I don't know Toyota and Volkswagen and all those you know car manufacturing companies combined. The latest company that they overtook in terms of market cap is J.P. Morgan. I found that surprising because J.P. Morgan is is a damn big bank paying an annual dividend yield and you know, having a solid business kind of like every year. And Tesla is now being worth more than J.P. Morgan. So here you go. Thank you, Robin Hood. Yeah. And you know what was out about the whole thing, and I don't know whether any one of you uh, have read up on that, is that some people at least speculate that people are front-running the fact that Tesla could be at some point included in some of these indices. The problem is they have to, I think, produce three years of, of actual profits before that uh, happens, which is uh, probably not any time anytime soon. Well, I have a little color on that. So uh, Okay, yeah, cool. So we, we wrote a blog this weekend, and I talked to... We've had probably... On the bear, our Bear Traps Report website, we've had probably 20,000 people on the website over the weekend reading this. A lot of people were reading about this blog. 
And here's what it comes down to. So there's a lot of conditions. So you're, you're absolutely right. Tesla has never had, it's, it's three consecutive, it's really, really four consecutive quarters of profits. Ah, quarters, now, okay. So they've had like, they've had three. So if they, they produce uh, results next week, and the, the, the theory is, is that they wouldn't go on the S&P right away. But it is a lot of gamesmanship because this is, you've never had in the history of America or the S&P or U.S. capitalism, typically the way it would work is, a company in its early stages would go into the S&P, not early, but mid, you know, when they become a large cap company, but it, it, talking about like 30% through its life cycle. And here, um, Tesla hasn't been around that long, but because of the central banks and because of the amount of money that's, you know, you've been let, you're really keeping the capital markets wide open for a long period of time. They've just developed this huge market cap, close to 300 billion total enterprise value, about 290 billion of, of equity market cap. And you've just never had a company like that come into the S&P. It's normally you come in at, um, you know, 20, well, I guess maybe 20, 60, 70 billion, 25 billion of market cap. So the problem is all the indices that have to buy the stock. And it's really like an evil genius thing because the S&P, um, you know, Tesla typically, if they do produce these, the profits this quarter and the results next week, they probably deserve to be in, and therefore all the amount of buying that, that go, would go into that. And, and that's why if you look at University of Pennsylvania, did a study, there've been a number of studies that show that a lot of the earnings results going into the S&P are in the like 18 months to two years before, and then a period of normalization. So what happens is companies uh, and boards of directors are just dying to get into that S&P. They're gaming it, they're gaming it, they're gaming it. They're juicing their earnings up. You get in and then the earnings either fall off or then you know, the index is left holding the back. So it's it's fascinating because that's clearly what's going on here. And then it's it's going to be very disruptive to the index because it, you're right. Right now, Procter & Gamble's at number 10, right? At 309 billion. And Tesla's at close to 300. So Tesla would come in anywhere between 12 and 10 in terms of S&P 500. So it would come in at the top we come in basically the top 12 companies, which has never happened before. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's staying with Tesla for a second, not that I, I'm not an equity uh, specialist in any way, shape or form, but it's quite interesting for us as systematic managers where, you know, our core philosophy is knowing what you don't know because nobody can tell the future. And so we just follow price essentially. But then you have something like Tesla, which is such a prime example of how, analysts have completely different views as to where the stock should trade. Um, and I don't know if anyone has been right at all, but it's just it, it's just a really classical picture of having no clue really about... I'll, uh, I'll, end, I'll end my Tesla comment with this one stat. Sure. If you measure the spread between the analyst price target and the stock, okay, this is the one of the widest stock spreads we've ever seen. And... It's just an incredible chart. We have the chart. It's up on our website, thebeartrapsreport.com. But it's $790 is the average to median target in the stock, as you said, hit $1,600 this week. So $780 is the average target. Uh, most of the analysts on the street have a sell. Goldman went to a sell maybe two months ago. So it's or more of a hold. But the bottom line is uh, the, the street is looking incredibly silly here but i want to remind you this is one of the most important parts of this of our talk today this is just what happened in the 90s 
uh, in the '90s, we sold our company yeah. ConvertBond.com to Morgan Stanley. So I was a I was a dot comer. Right. And um, the, what happens is the froth and the mad the, the serpent in the market that mad mob just bids up stocks so aggressively. And we saw this in, in 1999, 1998. The analysts can't keep up, and so that's mm. that's what's happening now with Tesla. The analysts are down at seven hundred and eighty dollars. The stocks at sixteen hundred. And this is what we saw in 1999, all over the place. Can we take a more optimistic view and say that, you know, the, the analysts in the late 90s were a little bit too uh, optimistic and aggressive, in fact, and, you know, putting buy ratings on a, a lot of companies that, frankly, were total dog shit. Yes, and, uh, for sure. <laughs> uh, so maybe some of the, you know, the legislation and the regulation and the changing culture actually actually uh, helped a bit. It is, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, there were a lot of, companies around in the, in the late 90s which um, wouldn't have got into the S&P either because you know they had no no earnings at all and um, but, but you're right it's, it's it's funny thinking back none of them were as as, as big as Tesla I mean the, the the big tech companies that were in the S&P were company real companies that made profits like Cisco uh, Intel I think Microsoft um, you know I think they were the four biggest tech companies in the S&P we didn't have all of the fluffy internet kind of dot-com this complete, complete rubbish, you know, pets.com and all, all, of, all of these things we can laugh about now. I mean, none of them, none of them really, they, they were sort of over, overvalued in terms of market cap, but none of them were, as you say, the sheer size of Tesla. So it, it is pretty unique, isn't it? It is. I mean, think about yesterday. There was an 18, between yesterday's high and the, and the after hours price, it was close to a 20% swing in Tesla stock. You're talking about like a $300 billion company with a 20% swing. I mean, this is like madness. You're talking about, yeah. this isn't like some like biotech, like you said, a pets.com. Yeah, a, or penny, a penny stock. Yeah, yeah, this is a lot of money moving around here. I mean, this is can be extremely destructive. And it's 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 setting up for a pretty ugly mess in the next couple of months. So that's that's a sixty billion dollar swing, right? Yeah. Between the high of the day and yesterday's after after hours price. And I just, you know, I, I didn't know about the ranking of Tesla if it came into the S&P tomorrow, which you say is between 10 and 12, right? Position 10 and yeah. 12, which is a very high ranking. And then if the if something like that happened then, right? I mean, you're along the S&P and you people trade the E-Mani futures contract and all that type of stuff, right? And Tesla goes down 50%. I mean, what does the S&P do? I mean, the S&P is left holding the back, like you say. I mean, it's introducing a ton of volatility to an index that everybody got accustomed to. Well, you know, we've seen the VIX trading sub 10. So, you know, this is a pretty behaved index. So maybe that thing becomes like a mini a mini NASDAQ. Yeah. We, we, we got a taste of this last year when Facebook missed the earnings. They were extremely high market cap at that time. You know, in the, I think well over through four, probably close $400 billion. And they missed the earnings. It was a big, about the same thing. It was about a twenty percent drop in like one or two days. You know, you, the problem with the S and P is everybody knows now it's got it's really ten stocks that are worth uh, have nine ten stocks essentially have you know a, a very large portion at least twenty. I'd say ten stocks have probably thirty to thirty two percent of the value in ten stocks and most of the profits. And so one or two of those stocks makes a big move. It can, it can it can really take the S&P down much more than they could before. Another kind of interesting sort of maybe hidden consequence of this massive rally we've seen in these uh, tech stocks is something I 
picked up this morning, which I certainly was really surprised about, it was to read about how Warren Buffett, who preaches diversification, trade, you know, invest in all these companies, right now, Berkshire Hathaway has a 43% allocation to Apple. <laughs> I mean, crazy. When my book came out, Charlie yeah. Munger invited me to Omaha, and I went out to see the annual meeting, and it was incredible. There was just so many people, in the, about 30,000 people in the Omaha, you know, in Omaha, Nebraska, in the stadium. And um, and then he invited me to, a, like, a, on Sunday, we went into the Marriott Hotel, and there was one room that was Buffett with the pension funds, and another room that was Bill Gates. And, and uh, I'll never forget, I'm in the room waiting for Charlie Munger, and in he came, and uh, my, my wife uh, introduced, I introduced my wife, and, and he said, one thing he said to me that I'll never forget, he said, Larry, the toughest thing in the world to do is stare at a screen all day and do nothing. And he was talking about, you know, and this is a couple of years, this is several years ago, he was just talking about how, you know, Berkshire will sit there and wait. And then I look at the last two years, and this is, I've just been incredible. I mean, they have $136 billion in cash. And they didn't buy any stocks in the drawdown in 2018. That was a 20% drawdown. And then in 2020, we had a 36% drawdown and they didn't put any money to work. So it tells you they're, they're sitting in the boat and they're waiting for uh, you know better values. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why Apple's such a big part of it. <laughs> right, sure, sure, sure. I also wanted to ask you because Moritz brought up a great list of things that we all hear about, we read about, all things that can blow up and and. We are aware of them, but it seems like we're kind of complacent about it, right? But in the in my introduction, I talked about that you are one who looks for the unexpected. So what are we what are we missing? What are we not focusing on? And what are you most worried about um, that maybe a lot of people aren't really paying attention to? Well, in the US, Dodd-Frank forced the banks to move a lot of assets off their balance sheet. So the private equity space is filled with a lot of the things that the banks used to have on their balance sheet. And the CLOs, the CMVSs, and a lot of these loans, these secondary market loans are in private equity hands. They're in CLOs that are in these, you know, the loan. I think the the U.S., what's fascinating now is, U.S. CLOs relative to Europe are dramatically underperforming. And it tells you that, once again, U.S. is having a little bit a more difficult time with COVID. But the the secondary market for lending and the, the amount of capital that's over there, if there's a problem there, then s- some of those assets will, will make their way back to the banks and or those assets get marked down and that impacts the value of the banks. I think that's why the Fed was so aggressive, right? Because the Fed knew, even though the banks are very well capitalized, and J.P. Morgan today, I mean, their, their reserves are incredible. But, you know, if those assets are marked down because of, think, think, think of just double ETC loans on airlines, right? So uh, airline, there's billions and billions of dollars in these airline double uh, ETCs, which are loan portfolios that back up the airlines. And this is just one aspect of the, take commercial real estate. So every part of CLO says it's baskets of these loans. And there's just so many there's so many air, airlines that have put their planes in the desert so there's no cash flows now to back up and so a lot of these loans both small businesses and all kinds of business loans are in private hands and 
it'll take a while for this problem to, to, to really, it's not going to take like a month thing with the COVID things only really been around one five, six months now. But in about a year and a half, two years, if these loans start going bad, then the banks have to really mark down their books. And then that's what I'm most worried about in the U.S. is, is that. And then this, and the second thing is just Italy, the amount of like Italy has, I think, um, total debt coming due the next couple of years, um, close to $850 billion next three years. And they're going to have, a, once again, that's another slow moving problem, right? Because you have the recovery fund, you have the whole period. But then like, you know, toward the end of the year, they're going to have to start, as they do in September, they're going to start doing the numbers. Once again, politicians have been running the show and doctors, not financial people. So they've been like over, very aggressive around, uh, you know, around really constraining economic activity. And once again, Italy is going to have to, is going to go hat in hand in the next 18 months to Europe. And it's going to be a lot bigger than the recovery fund, unfortunately. So do you think that Madame Lagarde will um, put her hand in the German taxpayer's pocket and uh, Boris is looking concerned? <laughs> you, you guys would know better than I am. <laughs> Does, doesn't, doesn't concern me anymore. I think that's almost a given. Yeah. I mean, it's either going to be, do we, do we want to keep the euro as a currency? Do we want to keep that let's just call it union, quote unquote, which, you know, it's uh, it's on paper, but in reality, it really isn't. Do we want to keep it intact and give it a chance or not? And I, I guess that th- this is exactly what it comes down to. And if you want to give it a chance and want to preserve it, then you just have to put the thing together and spend the money on it. Otherwise, it's just going to fail because Italy and Spain and all the other countries still just drop off. Yeah. So the, the, the ECB is going to save the Italians, but why, why wouldn't the Fed just kind of buy up these CLOs and just kind of keep that particular part of the system afloat? Um, okay, so right now the Fed hasn't, um, they haven't, I think there's, I think right now they can buy AAA CLOs. Right now, if you look at the Fed's tools, they've been pretty aggressive, but they haven't been that aggressive, on, I believe, on the derivative side. So the lower quality CLOs, yet I don't think that that's like on the menu um, yet, which it probably will be, right? Um, but it's it, it's a real complicated problem for the Fed because it's you're talking about hundreds of counterparties and hundreds of bonds and, and these and slices and slices and slices. So it, so far they've avoided it. But um, there's usually stress and tension before the Fed, you know, takes major actions, right? <laughs> so. It's listed under dessert on the menu, actually. <laughs> <laughs> dessert. Maybe it's the cheese course. Yeah. I think right now, exactly. I think they can buy triple A CLOs. Any final thoughts, Rob and Moritz, uh, while we have Larry and also trying to be respectful of his time? No, it's been a very interesting conversation. Nothing else from me. That's been great, Larry. Thanks for joining us. And thanks. And, and I would just say, as, as we look toward the election, you can go to the beartrapsupport.com. Anybody that would like um, a free look over the next month, we're going to be um, sitting down with the team in Washington every week and then producing reports. And we're coming up with sector rotation calls based on, you know, as we saw with the Trump election, there's just incredible sector rotation uh, in the months before and after the election. And um, so that's that's what we're going to be focused on in the U.S. So we're happy, happy to help there. Perfect. Absolutely. Larry, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, we really do appreciate it, as I'm sure all of our listeners do. And by the way, as Larry said, make sure that you subscribe to Larry's work on Twitter and the 
beartrapsreport.com and of course also the Larry McDonald series on Real Vision. As you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a true global macro-driven world and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Rob, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro mini-series. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.